Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed colleagues, welcome to the Second Yoho Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Pastor, my pastor. Um, Yeah. Well, I want to talk about what we're smoking first because you got me this Liga Travada and it's delicious. Yeah. Is it too wet? No. Okay, good. No. It's smoking just fine. I was a little worried that it wouldn't um, smolder very well. But it's, but it's smoldering. Yeah, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Excellent. And you have that... Uh, well, we, already, we already did this, but tell the people what you're smoking. I am smoking a Southern Draw, Jacob's Ladder. Um, and it's okay. And the Southern Draw... Oh, no, draw, it's the Rose of Sharon. Rose of Sharon? Rose Isn't of that Sharon. a... Uh, that's an actual flower, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, tons of biblical imagery there. But um, I don't know if there are... I was told that this was a reformed cigar roller. Uh, they have like the five solas on their label, and right. So anyway, is it any good? It's okay. It's okay. On a, I'd give it a seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. That's for not, that's for not a, for an under ten dollar cigar. Mm. And a brick house gets an eight out of ten, in yeah. an under ten dollar cigar. Yes, brick houses are phenomenal. Yeah, that's got to be the best like under $10? six dollar eight dollar cigar. I haven't had one better. So, let's see. The, Perla Del Mar? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of those. They're okay. 6'5". But, five. but the, my, six father, five. my father, um, Flor de las Antillas, mm. is about the same price point, And that's a much better cigar than Brickhouse. But that's the only one. Do you one. count things that are small cigars and that's why? Like, so Nasty Fritas, Papa Fritas? I don't, uh, I guess I don't consider those to be in the same They're not in the same classification, league. no. Because they're nice cigars. They're nicer they're cigars. So than, yummy. Yeah. But, but they're yeah, they're $6. like. Yeah, and they're very small. Yeah. Yeah. I got I got a pack of these um, punch little guys. Mm. Which I enjoy. Never had a punch. No? They're actually Never. pretty good. Oh, yeah, cigarillos. Yeah. Are they're, they tight? Are they tightly rolled? I don't know yet. I haven't smoked them yet. Um, but I had a pack, I don't know, a couple years ago, I had a pack of the, um, Cohiba Red Dot Cigarillos, and they taste just as good as their full-size cigars, and it's like a pleasant little, pleasant little cigar. And a legal little. Wasn't as good. No? Nope. Mm. That's good. Well. <clears throat> okay, anyway, so we're, we had started talking about repentance, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this. Um... What, what got your mind yeah. going down this path that you were thinking, I'm going to talk about repentance? Well, a couple things. One, um, I've been struggling with personal repentance, with, you know, sin issues, which is typical, I think, of everybody. Um, but the idea that, like, an emotion I, I have felt towards a thing or a person um, is sinful and it's not like I don't know it seems to me to be a different uh, it's different than like doing something physically like stealing something or whatever or, you know whatever or looking at porn or something like that that it's like well just you know stop doing that thing um, 
it's I feel like it's it's been much harder to deal with an emotional mental state of mind that is sinful mm. um And so, it, yeah, so that got me thinking about it. Also, um, I had listened to a podcast a while back, um, an episode of the White Horse Inn, where they were talking about it, which was very helpful. But then I was talking to um, Ethan about, you know, repentance, broadly speaking. And then uh, Ravi Zacharias came up for obvious reasons. I think he's become kind of a case study. Um in what it looks like for an avowed believer to, um, you know, be be involved in some pretty <clears throat> horrific stuff. Yeah, pretty horrific and deep seated stuff. So, would you put Ravi? Where are you categorizing him right now? Would you say Ravi was um, a believer who died with? heinous levels of gross sin on him or would you say his heinous levels of gross sin mean his repentance probably wasn't genuine somewhere in the middle well see this is where i get this is the issue i don't think that you can say that about anyone i don't phrased that way i don't think the latter applies to anyone and this is my issue so i don't think that it's accurate or profitable or accurate to say about anyone this is someone who claimed to be a believer but because of his gross sin uh we can't count him as such. I think that that, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that is not um, at you, least a proper way to phrase it. After death, you mean particularly? I mean that one who professes faith in Christ... Well, it's, I mean, obviously you can't know. You don't, you can't know someone's heart. But mm-hmm. but if repentance is a changing of the mind, which I think we would agree that that's what it is in the, you know, the, the Greek New Testament. You know, Acts 3.19, the word repentance there is a change of the mind, a changing of the mind. Um, and so, like, If, very clearly, I haven't, this is why you're here, so I can think through this. I'm stuttering cool. and, and You're doing pausing. great. I think very clearly, yeah, so if the, if the word means a change of the mind, then one's actions have very little to do with it. Which I, I that sounds like I'm being an antinomian, but, uh... <clears throat> Do one's actions display what the mind thinks? Yes. But if if we're condemned for our sin, though we grieve over our sin, then we're all going to hell. True. And so this is why I'm I this is why we started to, why Ethan and I started talking about Robbie, because like it's so easy for people to say, and they do often that, well, obviously Ravi wasn't saved because look at all this sin. Look at all this stuff that happened. Right. But if he was grieved by his sin, then he's in heaven right now. Is that... Is that is that fair? That's a great question. I don't know. Um, so in life, we're actually commanded to 
to make declarations about one's current salvific state, yay or nay. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. Oh, in terms of others. Right. You know, when someone is in grievous sin, and, you know, Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now that word there, if he listens to you, right, is not the same as the word repent that you find in chapter 3 that you're referencing. But there is uh, the sense of if he gives ear, if he um, if he gives audience, if he if he comes to understand, heeds your correction, your exhortations um, to come out of that sin and, and and does, then you have gained your brother, right? And then it goes through the process. If he doesn't listen, take a couple. Uh, two or more, if he refuses to listen to them, tell them to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And Jesus is using those two guys as an example because they are two categories of people that the Jews of Jesus' day would have immediately recognized as having departed the faith. Okay, sure. So the concept is where there is a lack of uh, repentance there should be a public distinction between who's inside and outside the faith. Yeah. So um, it was interesting. We did um, a church discipline case. Oh, yeah. Sure. Recently. And um, when I read the letter, one of the brothers came up to me afterwards and said, uh, Kenny, you, you, you announced that he was removed from RCF, the church local. But you didn't actually declare him, you didn't actually remove him publicly from the church universal, which Mm. is kind of what's happening in Matthew 18. Um, And that's partly because of, um, I don't disagree with his supposition of where this guy is, you know, um, but that's a difficult thing. So there's, on one hand, repentance is really the distinction between the believer and the non-believer. Yes. You know, um, a, a felt and expressed sorrow and changing of mind about one sin, going from loving one sin to hating one sin, going from running mentally towards one sin to mentally away from one sin and finding ways to make that mental run away from sin manifest physically as a running away from sin. So, and the physical manifestation, of course, in James chapter 2. This was, yeah, this is the next thing I want, the next place I wanted to go. Right, where that becomes now when James 2 comes in and says, okay, you say you have faith, you have to demonstrate that faith. You say you have repentance, you have to demonstrate that repentance. So I sympathize with the guys who say things like, man, I, I don't have any confidence that Ravi is with Christ right now. Because if he did have a mental anguish that was spirit wrought over his sin. You know, the question is, um, if he doesn't have a spirit wrought anguish over his sin, um, that was heinous and gross. Or is it even possible that he has a spirit wrought anguish over his sin and never to anyone, as far as we know, um, acknowledged that? Um, 
there's a, you know, that's, I'm not sure I can make a positive biblical argument for the Spirit bringing about conviction over a sin and that not becoming manifest. You know, the, the Spirit wrought merely an internal private repentance that was never in any way expressed in action or deed. Certainly, yes, I, I can certainly agree with that. And it's hard, like, obviously with Robbie, we don't know him. So it, you you almost have maybe to... Maybe he did. Maybe he had a brother. Right. I have maybe no this idea. is the thing. But, it was, but for the sake of argument, we can strawman him as a person and say... Sure. If Ravi, or if, if you know, Joe Schmo um, felt something... Felt a negative emotion about his sin, um, but never sought any help or freedom from it you know then I think you can say then I think you can ask the question you know what is what is true sorrow over sin but right like some, again if the same guy feels a negative emotion or whatever about his sin and seeks to talk to someone about it um and even if it's because... But struggles with it for a long time. Struggles with it for a long time. Even if it's a heinous, gross thing like Robbie's sin was. It's very different. It's very different. So that's... I mean, that's why I th- I'm i not even sure... I think Robbie has become a... You know, a, a, I said I called it a case study. I guess maybe that's not... That's a good term. But but it's maybe not even a helpful one because you have to, like I said, straw man the, the, the man to make it an argument yay or nay. The thing I struggle with, though, is, is that in James... The lang or I'm sorry, First John. The language is so um, actions based. It is. Anyone who makes a practice of sin. Well, right, but what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, even even in chapter one. So Matthew introduced it, but he didn't he didn't get in any of the spicy stuff, right? Well, he, yeah, he only got the chapter to verse four. Verse four. And the thing is, it was so funny because I was I had been talking to Marie about about the concept of repentance. Um, I had a I met I uh, we were met with the Tullys for something else, and uh, it came up, and Kevin and I talked about it for a split second, and we were both like, "Well, this isn't actually what we're here to talk about." So let's you know, we're doing a book study together, and that's not what the book is about. So we we're like, "Okay, let's put that on hold," and. Um, even in the even in the brief kind of back and forth that Kevin and I did have, um, uh, I said something like, Kevin said something, and I'm I I don't want to paraphrase what he said. He said, um, if you if one makes a practice of unrepentant sin, one is not saved. And I only know he said unrepentant because Marie later later. Um, backed him up on that. I didn't I didn't hear him say unrepentant. I just heard practice of sin. Okay. And I was and I said I don't agree um for a, a you know a whole litany of reasons that if one you know makes a practice of sin then one is not saved because otherwise no it, you know if that's the case then no one's saved. And obviously you so you got to define that term, don't you? You do. And Marie said, well first Marie said she she was the one that brought us back. She was like, "Well, David, you're wrong." Kevin's right, let's move on. And I was like, maybe. And then later she said, you both, you're, she said, you guys are both saying the same thing. 
you're just not she didn't say not she didn't say it quite this way but she said you're both saying the same thing you're just not defining terms so you're not getting anywhere okay which i think is where the problem lies right i mean you have to define your terms if you're going to have a conversation about something like repentance or really any doctrine that's you know that's what a doctrine is uh is a definition of of a practice or belief is that, is that right is that what a doctrine is anyway a doctrine i mean a doctrine is just a truth or a teaching a teaching, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but so a teaching, a definite, definition, definitionally, a teaching, on a on a, a subject faith, or whatever, yeah, or practice, yeah. Anyway, so you have to define your terms and and yeah, to say a practice of sin, I don't know what that means. The thing is, when I was reading in First John, uh, cha- the beginning of chapter two, if if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then it goes on to say, uh, uh, oh, before. Yeah. If, um, the end of chapter one, is that where you're leaning to? If we say no. we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Yeah, we where is that? Six and seven. Six and seven, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Right. So it struck me, I wondered if, when he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, I wondered if, well, even later when he says, um, the one who says, whoever keeps his word, in him is the love of God. Sorry, in him the love, I'm going to start over. This is chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And I wondered if... Well, I think I just answered my question to some degree. But I wondered if walking in the light isn't isn't referring to physical... Isn't referring to actions sinful actions and and thoughts but rather the 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 act of repentance itself so walking in the light meaning jesus meaning because jesus is the light that sort of thing well walking in the light as he's in light the light walking in the light being having the change of mind um to be grieved over your sin rather than saying if you keep doing these things you're not in the light. Instead saying, if you walk in the light, meaning you have a changed mind. But I don't know, because then he says, um, in verse 6, the one who says he abides in him on himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. I mean, Jesus did never repent. Mm-mm. But he did, he did, right, right, he lived righteously. Right. Yeah, I think positively what we're talking about is like walking in positive righteousness. So when we talk about Jesus' obedience to the Father, we talk about his act of obedience and his passive obedience. Mm-hmm. His passive obedience, of course, is his suffering and death in our place. His act of obedience is his, his willful um, conforming himself to the will of God. You know, living in accordance with God's holy law. And, and I think that's what is being referenced. The challenge is going to be, is going to be terms like 
the hyper literalist will really struggle with first john i'm struggling with first john (laughs) yeah you almost have to back up for just a moment and say okay (coughs) what is john's point okay that's helpful and john's point in writing first john isn't to cause questions about your regeneration Mm. or whether or not and and as you read it Try to know how, notice how many times, like he says in verse 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Mm. He's not trying to, he will do this in, in other places, and it is helpful to distinguish between those who are in him and are, but his purpose with this letter to those who are regenerate is to give confident assurance of their salvation. Oh. And if you read this too literally, it will actually cause the genuinely regenerate to question their regeneration. Which is the opposite. Which is the opposite of his intended purpose for the letter. Hmm. So he wants to give guys like us a sense of assurance after we have read his letter. We ought to close this book thinking, I'm so grateful now. I have a deep, strong, abiding assurance that I really am in him. Last two words of verse five. All right. Then verse six, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And the number one means of us having some semblance of assurance is, uh, and this is a challenge, but it's our life. It's our Christian walk. Mm. Now, that's really difficult because um, I've said this in the forum on a number of times. If I try to assess whether or not I'm saved based on any given five-minute period of my life, I am either an apostle or a reprobate. Sure. You know? Yes. And um, neither are anywhere near true. You know? But uh, you take any five minutes of my life, and that's not the way that John wants us assessing our lives. But expressions like makes a practice of. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this, um, I don't know if we did uh, again recently, but years ago when we first started teaching our parenting material that we teach, you know, one of the things we use the, we use the expression, what characterizes your child? Mm. Not just what, what has your child done three times today, but what characterizes your child? And we want to talk about what characterizes us. Not, you know, I've got this one issue that I really struggle to be repentant in. Because if I try to base this one area of struggle for me that sometimes I'm less immediately and swiftly repentant. um, I mean, honestly, what guy hasn't had a moment where, you know, their wife has caught them being impatient, harsh, whatever. She addresses it and the immediate response isn't, well, hold on back up off me. You know, that sort of thing. Yes. I'm not immediately repentant. Right. Right. So is that then uh, the obliterator or of all of my sense of assurance? By no means. Rather, what characterizes me? Do I live there? Right. Always in an all or most sin situations? Or do I actually tend to live and, to use John's language, walk in the areas of, yeah, I was being a bot and I was hard-headed about it and I didn't want to repent, but doggone it if she wasn't right. Sure. Um, and so that's, I think, I think characterizations are really helpful. So when somebody says that, 
uh, I try to look at, you know, what characterizes. I, you know, assurance of salvation is something that a lot of people struggle with, especially early in their Christian life. And uh, I've spent a lot of time in counseling situations where somebody has come to me and they've hyper-focused on the struggle that they're in right there in the moment. And they're like, certainly I can't be saved. They're failing to see that even now in the conversation right. that they're having with me. They're worried about it. They're horrified. Yeah. They hate that they can't muster the kind of repentance that they think is worthy or the kind of turn away, uh, turning away from their sin that they think is worthy and right and whatever. And all those, all of those things should be assurance to them, you know. Um, Sproul's really helpful in this category. Okay. Um, do you ever hear what he used to say? Somebody would come to him and say, yeah, Pastor, how can I know if I'm saved? And he would he would pull the question. He would be like, well, do you love Jesus? <laughs> you know, and he would be like, yes, I love Jesus. You know, and that was always the frustratingly easy answer. Yeah. Or frustratingly easy to answer question. Of course I love Jesus. And he was like, oh, do you really love Jesus? Yeah, I really do. And then he'd lean in and he'd cock an eyebrow in R.C. Sproul fashion. Yeah, love him as much as you want to. Oh, wow, that's a great question. Yeah, and immediately all assurance is lost. You know, <laughs> yeah. the guy's like, that's it, I knew it. I but knew that it. very, yeah. Of course not. And then he finishes with one question. Of course you don't love him as much as you ought to. That's the part that you're focused on, isn't it? But the question is this, do you love him really? Yeah. Do you love him so that even though you fail him a number of times, in the end, he pulls you out of the sin more often than not? Well, and the, those two questions, set, the first two questions set side by side, do you love Jesus and do you love him as much as you should? Those two, I think, give away the whole game because the answers that a believer has will be complete are are the opposite of what a non-believer believer right. would, would say because either a non-believer would say no I don't love Jesus because I don't you know I don't even care or yes I love Jesus and yes I love him as much as I should or you know or some some backwards configuration of of but a believer says yes of course and no of course right that's super interesting and if you do no believer sometimes believers say no um, to their assurance of salvation because the second question is no. I don't love him as much as I should. Sure. Right. Um, for that, I think, you know, um, some time reading in the Old Testament is good. Uh, I'm getting ready for the Chronicles series when we get back. And um, Chronicles is, you know, the entire first book is just David. Mm -hmm. It's names which get us to David. The first... Nine ten chapters of Second Chronicles is Solomon. There's only twenty nine chapters in Second Chronicles and uh, thirty. I can't remember how many, but there's there's um, you know a, a good hunk of the Second Chronicles is Solomon, and then you get into Kings. And um, I, I was reading about Jeroboam this morning, and Jeroboam was described as a guy who really did love the Lord, really did. But man, if he didn't make some super boneheaded decisions, sure. Even when confronted by his sin by credible sources, a prophet named Micaiah, who he had sent out to teach Judah and be a, uh, an instructor of Israel so that they would know the law. 
and know God's word and God's will for their lives and all those things. Somebody that he recognized, this guy really is a prophet of God. He's having dinner with Ahaz because he's uh, connected to him through marriage. And they're sitting in their royal robes. Ahaz is like, my man, Jeroboam, will you go fight with me against these bad guys? And, Jer- and uh, Jehoshaphat is like, well, you know, like we're, we're basically the same man. Your enemies, my enemies. Your people, my people. <laughs> of course I will fight you. But the question I have to ask you is this. Have you asked God as to whether or not you should be fighting those people? Mm. Have you consulted the Lord yet? Great question. It's a good question. And so he's like, well, you know, I can do this. And so Ahaz, or Ahab, you remember his wife? Jezebel. She was a rough one. Rough one. And it's fascinating because Elijah and the prophets of Baal, none of that appears in the Chronicles story. And so uh, it's a very selective telling of Israel's history. Ahab, um, then it's like he gets all of his prophets together and he's like, all right, guys, what do you think? Does the Lord want us to fight in all, all the hundreds? You imagine these are the same guys who with Elijah were trying to get the fire to come down on oh, the yeah. offering. And these guys are going like, oh, yes, the Lord wants you to go out and fight. The Lord says it. And, and uh, uh, oh, what's his face? Uh, Jehoshaphat is like, well, is there not a prophet anywhere around that we can ask a real question to? Is there not a real man <laughs> right. in the room who doesn't just say what you tell Whatever him Whatever you say? want him to say. And so finally he's like, well, there's this Micah Aya guy, but I hate him because he always says bad things about me. That's what he says. But he brings him in nevertheless, and Micaiah is like, hey, what do you think? Should we go fight? Micaiah uses some sarcasm, and he was like, oh, absolutely. Go and fight and win. Do wonderful. I'm sure it'll be great. Sure. And, and you wouldn't notice that it's sarcasm, but for Ahab's response, and he was like, how many times do I have to tell you? Just tell me what you actually, just say what you really think. And he was like, okay, you asked for it. Mm. And so he gives him this word, and he's like, no, you shouldn't do this. You're wrong about this. So Micaiah, the prophet that... Jehoshaphat said, this guy's real. I want him to teach the people of Judah. Ahab asked him, should we do this? He says, no. Mm. And Jehoshaphat fights with him anyway and nearly gets himself killed. Ahab does this wicked thing where he's like, hey, Jehoshaphat, you keep on your kingly garb while we're going to war. I'm going to go dress like a common man, but it's totally fine. You stay dressed like a king. I'm going to go dress like an ordinary guy. Turns out the bad guys had made a decision that they were going to target the guy dressed like Israel's king. Mm. And Israel's king isn't even Jehoshaphat, it's Ahab. And so they see Jehoshaphat and start targeting him. They make a beeline for him, right? So we've got nothing but sin, sin confronted by right. a man of God speaking God's very words because they're recorded in Scripture. Right. Somebody that the king already knew is one who speaks God's very words. He didn't listen to him. He did it anyway. And in the middle of getting about to be killed, he's about to die for it. And he's like, Lord, you got to help me. I, I made a terrible mistake here. He's delivered mm. Ahab, who's clever schemes, you know, whatever. Some rando, it's a, it's some guy who's not even named you know, shoots an arrow randomly into the sky and it pierces him right between two plates of armor. So he thinks he's getting out of danger by dressing like a commoner, but he's the guy who leaves with a nearly mortal wound. Mm. And Jehoshaphat doesn't. So Jehoshaphat has a season, all this story to say, 
Jehoshaphat has a season where if you look at him, you go, man, that guy was unrepentant. Right. That guy was whatever. Sometimes you can be unrepentant for a season of folly. The question isn't, am I unrepentant for a little while? It's, does God leave me there? Does God leave me there? Um, well, and that's, just, that's obviously an important uh, phrasing of the... Of the of that concept, not the question is not do I stop doing the thing. The question is, does he um, bring me out of it? Yeah. <clears throat> What's fascinating about that story in Second Chronicles is God takes credit explicitly for all the stuff that happens there that day. You know, when the when the the fighting was happening. Oh, sure. It, there was a story. Um, one of the prophets came up to him and says, oh yeah, the spirit, uh, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I, um, I'll go back enough just to say, Micah, I said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. This is after the fighting. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice? So the Lord God says this to the hosts of heaven. Mm. And the demons of hell potentially here, he says, who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one, one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? This is just like Job and Satan, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. that sort of thing. And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are, he being the Lord, you are to entice him and you shall succeed and go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. So it really is the Lord who does this. Yeah. Not like, not something that I'm mustering that I'm willing. You're looking for what is God providentially leading you to or leaving you in. Right. So Ahab is a guy who has not been repentant. You know, he's a hard-hearted dude. Does God harden that heart? Well, in this case, he does. You know, and, and I think those are some of the things that you're looking for, you know, when it comes to repentance. Or does God soften your heart? Yeah, that's really good. I um I don't know, I just get so frustrated with the whole like Can you lose your salvation? No. Um if you sin repeatedly, if you sin, can you lose your salvation? No. If you sin repeatedly, can you lose your salvation? Still no. And right, and the, but the answer is so often well. Rep, uh, a repeated repeated sin is a is a indication that you don't have salvation to begin with. It's like that's we're leaning too hard on us, yeah. rather than. We're looking for what we're doing rather than what God's doing. 
-hmm. We're looking for, you know, evidence of something that you produced in yourself as opposed to evidence of election or reprobation. Well, and one of the things I find uh, comforting in 1 John is when he says... If any of us say we are without sin, we're, we make him a liar. We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So, like, yes. And I think, I guess that goes to your, your point about the, the broader, um, the broader point of First John is not. It's to give assurance. Right. And, and that, that does give assurance in knowing that, yes, we must walk in the light as he is in the light. Along with that, we're going to sin. So, yeah, I don't know. That's really good. I the, the um that chronicles account that you just read. I it's it just drives home yet again the fact that we and everyone else have such a small understanding of God's dealings with with us in the realm of um, sin and righteousness and redemption. Yeah. And the uh, I don't know. It's so clear in when when things like that are read. It's so clear that his primary goal is not um, our earthly well-being, or even our eternal well-being. Primarily, it's his. It's his glory and his. His yeah, his glory. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So yeah, so in the so in the in the discussion of repentance, it's so easy to forget that he is the actor. Um, and yeah, we are commanded to act righteously, <clears throat> but non passe, non peccare. And you, when you look at Jehoshaphat, that doesn't look like, there's no way you look at that and glory in Jehoshaphat. There. No, that's the oh, thing. Oh man, he was so repentant. No, he was literally being surrounded by bad guys and said, God help me. Right. He cried and then, out. And then he was not, yeah, he wasn't just permitted to repent. He was driven to repentance. Yes through pretty significant means. Yes. That's why, so Hosea has been really, we've been doing Hosea um, in Bible study, and that's been a really fascinating um, book to go through in that vein, because there's so much um, talk of, you know, he brings us low that we might, that we might repent. Uh, Hosea 6, um, let us let us know. Let us. Uh, what does it say? Let us. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not, not in front of me. I can flip to That's it. Right. <clears throat> Israel and Judah are unrepentant. Is the title there? <laughs> What's do you have it up? Go ahead. I do. Um, the first. I think it's the first four verses or the first three verses of chapter. Come, six. let us return mm-hmm. to the Lord. Well, I think that's. Um, I think that's my favorite definition of repentance, of returning to the Lord. Right. Um, you know, it is preeminently, it begins with uh, a mental and volitional uh, decision, but it manifests itself physically. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us yeah. that, he may, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. I'm always encouraged, even in situations of gross difficult church discipline if god loves you enough to have a church family confront you over your sin and cast you out of the congregation there is some still sense of i'm hopeful that he's just tearing you down and that we're to give you over paul's letter to the thessalonians Mm -hmm. to satan for a season 
that you might be saved from him. Yeah. Uh, you know. Well, there's so, so there's so much language of of in in Hosea, well, and elsewhere, uh, James too. But um, you you know your joy will be turned to to mourning. I think that's the James the James verse. But um, in in Hosea, where is it? I'm not gonna find it. He it talks about, um, you know, you will not you will not have joy. You will you will weep and mourn, and um, mourning and 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 weeping and um, what is what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, sort of the grieving of yeah, that that grief is so is so important, and and I and think that's Paul in Colossians or First uh, Corinthians. Uh, is it First Corinthians? Second Corinthians. It's Second Corinthians seven. Oh man, I had uh, the godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, distinction. Oh, I had a different. Um, yeah, yeah. Can, we, I'll pull it up. Sure, I'll I'll try to find the James. Um, You know you have kids when you have a bunch of ripped pages in your Bible. I know. <laughs> yeah, the um, Thomas Watson talks about this um, too in his yes. book yep. Doctrine of Repentance. The first several chapters that he deals with. Um, you know, he deals with worldly sorrow and what that looks like versus godly sorrow and what that looks like. Yes. And um, I think that's so helpful because they're both sorrow. And a lot of times, you know, um, one of the things that I think is such a, a danger, he calls it counterfeit repentance. And I, I think, um, you know, two people can show up in the office and talk to me about, you know, their sin and cry just grieve tears and have honest, genuine, full, full, fully emotional and volitional grief, but for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. Grief over, I hate the consequences of what, of, of the thing that I love, my sin. Versus, I hate that I love sin right. in my flesh. Those are very different. Very different. And, um... That one, the latter, I hate that I love sin in my flesh, leads to life, says Paul uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, whereas worldly sorrow leads to death. And, you know, I, I, that's just, that's such a, um, a, a reality. I think sometimes people, when they read Thomas Watson's Doctrine of Repentance, his language is so experiential. Uh, the Puritans were like that. They called it experimental, but same thing, experiential. Hmm. And and you know he and the language is so beautiful and and uh, full of antiquity. And and you know he talks about how you should loathe your sin, hate your sin, and all these things. And the language is so flowery that sometimes modern readers go, "I'm not sure I feel that level of depth." Sure. Well, and he even Tommy Watts even talks about that very thing. He says, mm -hmm. "Not everyone feels." The same level of the same level, like yeah, it may be the same um, life-giving sorrow over sin felt in different capacities. Yeah, here's the the James. It's James four uh, six through ten, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and Mm. your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Yeah. And, like, that, I don't know, that, that whole sentiment is so diametrically opposed to everything that is, you know, uh, the avoidance of pain being the ultimate ethic and liberation theology and everything that's wrapped up in, in freedom from, um, earthly discomfort. Obviously, uh, liberation theology goes deeper in, in other ways, but the idea being any temporal suffering is to be avoided as all, at all costs. It's a fascinating point you bring up. Culturally, our society is trying to eliminate even worldly grief. Yeah. You know, there's a sense in which it wants to take worldly gr- grief away. Um, a lot of therapists, um, secular therapists, when they see people, they want to alleviate any sort of internal conscience, God-given conscience felt shame for wrong things that they've done or sins that have come. So um, this often happens. When someone has sinned against you, there is a, a sense of icky, gross shame because you've been touched by sin. Mm. You've been harmed by sin. And the sinfulness of that person's actions against you, you feel the shame of that sin. And therapists these days are trying to alleviate any sense of felt shame over that sin. And I'm not sure there's nothing biblical about that. I think therapists want to eradicate any notion of sin in general. Because there's no, there's no pleasantness about sin at all. So if you're, gonna, if, you're, if you're going to paint a picture of the world and your existence in it um, with any implication of the ability to be free from discomfort or shame, you, you have to get rid of sin. You have to, you have to preach a gospel of, I guess, sinless perfectionism. Even if it's not labeled as such, yeah, I don't know. But the when when um, Hosea and God uh, in turns are 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 judging the people of of Israel and Hosea, um, it's I mean the 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 condemnations are dark, man. I mean, like barren wombs and and cut off breasts and uh, it's pretty heavy death and yeah. oh man. It's so dark, but that's that's the that's how ugly sin is. That's the reality of of sin. And again, like in verse eleven, the beginning of verse eleven of Hosea, chapter one, chapter eleven. I'm sorry, oh, okay. chapter eleven of Hosea. How far are you guys in that? We're almost done. We're I think we're doing. You're doing twelve. We're doing eleven. Coming. I think we're doing eleven this week. Okay. Um. <clears throat> Chapter 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Uh, Blah, 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 blah. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. It's like, again, the condemnation is dark 
and the judgment is clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but the redemption is is not only sweet because because of how dark the judgment was, but the judgment is sweet because it comes from God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. Um, who's who's making promises that will be kept, like I will not come in wrath. And even though there's there's judgment and all the stuff concerning sin, upon repentance, which is granted by the Lord, the redemption thereby is is something to behold. Yeah. Yeah. Even um, verse ten, the verse I was talking about yeah, in yeah. Corinthians. Yes. For godly grief produces a repentance. Oh wow. That leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That's so good. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. You know, there's a sense in which um, um, I'm always encouraged when someone feels uh, grieved and gross because somebody has sinned against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's indicative. I hate the dirtiness. You know, Jesus despised the shame of being condemned for sins that he never committed. Oh, wow. Yeah. I never actually thought about what it meant that he despised the shame. Yeah. The shame of of those sins under the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. Hated, hated the shame of sins that he felt as if as if they were his own when he never committed them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And I think, uh, you know, so grief is one of those subjective things. And if you try to use the level or measure of grief that you feel sure. as your, your, your baseline of assurance, you're, gonna, you're either going to be too assured or underassured. Uh, because, you know, the fact that you have grief or disdain or just hatred of sin and it's just, I hate this, is assurance. The measure or level of it, um, it, it can't, it's assurance if... It makes you think, I wish I were free of that. I wish I wish I had no part in that sin and I want to strive to have no part of the sin. Whether or not it's sin that you've committed or has been committed against you, that you would have a zeal to um, you know, lead salvation without regret. Uh, godly grief has produced in you eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. All these things are in there and I think um, those are things that um, that you look for, and those are all those are all assurances of salvation. When when somebody comes to me and they say, you know, like I um, they're struggling with a sin that they're having a hard time not doing anymore. Mm-hmm. So pornography is the just the the low hanging yeah, sure. fruit here. You know, a, a young guy will come and sit down with me, and he'll talk to me about pornography. The guy who wants to lie about his pornographic pattern, I'm really worried about. Yeah, of course. But the guy who comes to me a thousand times yet disdains his pornographic use for the purpose of, not just because I hate this because, 
you know, I'm really, I'm really hoping to be perceived as a, that's not helpful. Or it's wrecking my relationship. It's or wrecking whatever. my relationship. Any of those Those things. are all pragmatic grief. Right. Things. That's worldly grief that leads yeah. to death. But godly grief that leads to life and repentance is, I hate this. I feel, I feel the shame of this sin. Not, I hate the consequences of this sin, but I feel like my Lord Jesus felt when, when sin that he never committed was imputed to him on the cross. Mm-hmm. I feel the shame of that sin. I hate it. And I even hate, sometimes I hate that I don't hate uh, my sin enough, which is a strange, you know. Oh, yeah, that's a meta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very meta. But first, John, I mean, you know, as we as we go through this together as a congregation, you know, the number of times where he will say, these things are written so that you may know mm. that you have life and life is in his son, you know. He is trying to help you know that you really are a Christian or you really just aren't. Right. You know, he's, he's it, it, by the end of the letter, you should have a, a good, strong sense of, I really do love Jesus. I don't love him perfectly, but I really love him truly. And I don't love him enough, yeah. I don't love him enough. Who does? Right. But that doesn't mean that I don't love him truly. You know? The love them enough part doesn't happen till glorification. A lot of times, lack of assurance comes from an over-realized eschatology. Okay. Wait, say that a sentence again. La- uh, lack of assurance can come from an over-realized eschatology. Okay. When I presume a level of glorification that only belongs to the last day, so... Um, oh, I see. I understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a guy in my old congregation, and he asked me one time, he said, do you believe in sanctification? And I said, of course I do. And he was like, good. And now, I, I didn't know what he was asking, but what he really meant was, do you believe in sinless, sinless perfectionism? Yeah, he's a, he's a Wesleyan. He's a Wesleyan. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a Keswick. And, Keswick. And, and I thought, uh, wow. You know, so he's, he's looking to have that sense of, I don't sin anymore. And if not sinning anymore is the basis or testimony to your regeneration, you either have to change the definition of sin... <laughs> Yes. You know what I mean? Or uh I don't know how I don't know how guys like that what like it's <laughs> just is there no introspection at all? Are they are they completely self self delusioned? Or We've had a member of our congregation, the first ever RCF church retreat. A member of our congregation said at the first ever RCF church retreat at this house we rented said, I haven't sinned in years. Good grief. So can you... And then you you said, okay, we'll start over, because that's one. (laughs) Right. And I said, you just did get one. (laughs) And it was terrible, because I said that in front of the whole room. (laughs) (laughs) Which at the time was the whole church, all 40 of us. You know, um, but... Yeah, so is that possible? Sure it is. You know, the, the, the Keswick's can convince themselves that they haven't sinned by not being being unwilling to really, truly, honestly examine themselves, which is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Mm. And 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 is also written, not so that you could have a sense of condemnation, but a sense of assurance. Verse 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 
I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Mm. So that there is a, a, a self-examination that Paul prescribes to the Corinthians for the purpose of confirming their sense of assurance. I want you to know you're really saved. Do the examination. Really be introspective. Can there be a harmful introspection where you obsess? And I, this is this is the the challenge. Yeah, I can obsess over my sins so much and examine myself so much that I look at a five minute period of my life and right. consu- can you know consider that who I am. Yeah, and uh, clearly I'm not saved. The examine yourselves. I think rightly we say this in four one one sometimes. When you examine yourselves, do so over a broad period of time and do so over characterizations, not individual moments. Mm -hmm. Do you find that God in his kind mercy has put you in positions where he forces you to call out to the Lord when you are unrepentant so that you repent? Right. Then you should have a sense of assurance. Yeah, of course. This is a... This is a very real topic. Oh, heavens, yes. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. The sense of assurance is one of those things. My own children, my oldest son, has struggled with a sense of assurance Mm. for a long time. At the men's retreat this past year, he confessed that struggle with a sense of assurance. A lot of that is based on things like, I haven't felt. So he looks at and instead of seeing what God is doing to pull him out of the sinful situations that he wants to just lay in in his flesh and seeing that God tends to bring him out of those things, what he does unhelpfully is compare himself to others. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. That's also a bad thing. You know, he compares himself to his mother uh, emotionally. Okay. And my wife is a very emotional creature and when she's caught in a sin, you know, it's deep grieving and tears and... You know, I mean, um, my oldest son doesn't always emote in the exact same ways. And because of that, really wrestles with. So does this mean that I'm not repentant because my repentance doesn't look like doesn't look like, yeah, weeping and wailing. Yeah. The thing he's got to compare, the person he's got to compare himself to is Jesus. Because that shows definitively that you are completely (laughs) wretched and not good. Yeah. Um... But Jesus also makes some some fairly profound promises that uh, give great hope. Yeah. Well, this is really good, man. Um, Do you want to stay later? Can you stay later? What time is it? I mean, it's not that late. I got a couple minutes left. A couple minutes? Yeah, I got to stop by the grocery store on the way home. Okay. And pick up some protein snacks for my daughters. They're testing this week. Are you reading anything good? Um, yeah, well, I, yeah, as you alluded to, I've, I started reading Doctrine of Repentance, mostly because of this whole quandary and uh, the fact that you said you'd come and talk about it. I wanted to, you know, read some other resources. Um, I've still been working on, uh, very slowly been working on... Uh, John Milton, Paradise Lost. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm not reading anything 
glorious, like, like, you know, literarily glorious, like Paradise Lost. But I'm going back through Joel B. Gee's Reform Preaching. Mm. It's just the best. Is it good? Yeah. You know, and uh, every time I read that, I feel like, um, I simultaneously feel like a horrible preacher but motivated to be a better preacher. Sure. And that's the best. That's a good way to be. That's the whole, that's the same exact thing as what we were just talking about. You compare yourself to Jesus. You you understand that you're a terrible person, but motivated to be a better one. I think sometimes the way we reformed, we talk about repentance. We talk about repentance in a way that doesn't motivate repentance, but demotivates repentance. Sure. Well, it's the same way we talk about prayer. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a, as a, as a, we reformed, we, you can't talk about prayer without talking about God's sovereignty. We can't talk about anything without talking about God's sovereignty. But, I don't know, that's one thing I've struggled with. I don't mean to get you off a of beaky. But one thing I've struggled with in, in terms of prayer is that, or in terms of, of the Reformed culture, and, well, not just the culture, but the doctrines in general. In, ta- in thinking about prayer, it's the classic conundrum of if God is sovereign, then why pray at all? Or why evangelize at all? You know, that's those are interesting, those are, you know, the classic never-ending question. Yeah, never-ending questions. I answered that question a hundred times a year. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you do. At least. Mm-hmm. You know? And it feels like a cop-out to some when I say um, that God has ordained yeah. that the means by which His grace often flows to you is through and only through prayer. So why do we pray? Because the means by which God's grace comes to you is only through prayer. Why do we evangelize? Because the means by which the gospel comes to others is only through evangelism. Right. And 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 that's that's what we do with sovereignty and things like that. Yeah. The other answer for why do we pray or evangelize? It's because God tells us to. Because because he, <laughs> he said you have to. Yeah, and that actually that actually got me through a lot of of that. Of that, like, quandary. It's just, well, I don't know, but I, I'm told to. But he told me I'm supposed to. So I'm going to do so it. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Well, or not sometimes. I sometimes do think about, um, I was praying for a situation the other day, and I and I, I found myself concluding that prayer, saying amen. And I thought to myself, is this the prayer through which your grace will come to that individual? Oh well, yeah. and repentance will be granted. Deliverance will be granted. Freedom from that sin will be finally experienced. You know, um, you know, it's one of those things. I, I I I texted Matthew. He preached Sunday, and I texted him Sunday, and I said something. Along, well, I'll just tell you what I told him. Please do. Um, I prayed for him Sunday morning. I was sitting in somebody else's church listening to a terrible sermon. <laughs> And um, and I told him, praying for you this morning, may God minister grace to his people through you today. Mm, yeah. You know, because it's, you know, God doesn't need Matt or me or any of us. It's not a matter of need, but it is a matter of uh, eternal ordination yeah. that he has chosen through men. You know, how will they hear unless someone is preaching and sent? Right. Romans 10. You know, that's how the gospel goes. And that's why how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So I, you know, it's, it's one of those fascinating things. For me, I have to go that far with it. 
I don't do well. I've got some brothers, fellow elders, who are just disciplined in their constituent natures. So they can, if they simply just say, well, I, I don't know exactly why we're, you know, we pray since God has produced and everything, but he says do it, so I'm going to do it. Yep. That has never been satisfying to me. Sure. It just never has. I've been like, no, you got to give me something better than that. I mean, I know he's told us to do it, but why has he? I'm the why kid. Why and so what? Uh, Matthew always asks this. He reads a doctrine. He's like, yeah, but so what? That's sure. his question. That's a and, good question. And, and I, you know, for me, I have to know, well, why is my prayer, why do you command me to pray? And, you know, when, when you study the scripture, you find it's because it is through that that God gives grace. You know, um, so Paul, consideration of your participation in the grace given to others is motivating. It's huge. Yeah. Because what I really want is grace to come to others. Sure. And um, if I think, well, God's ordained it, predestined it, or so whatever, that deed motivates prayer in my mind. Sure. But if I think, yeah, God's predestined it to give grace through my prayers, it motivates prayer. And if I if I add sovereignty and predestinated grace going to that in or uh, that individual through my prayer then all of a sudden i'm way even more motivated because uh, you know this might be the very prayer through which god has eternally predestined to give saving grace sometimes i think this about my own children oh wow, yeah one who hasn't yet made a profession of faith four out of five have uh repented of their sins trusted in jesus made credible professions of faith we're eva- evaluating that last one and we we come back for a sabbatical from sabbatical, I think uh, we'll be presenting number four uh, as a baptismal candidate, Lord willing. Um, but one thing that I think that's crazy is like, as you know, as I pray for my child, every night I pray, you know, that God would save them, mm-hmm. that He would uh, take out their hard and stony hearts and give them soft hearts. And and I wonder which one of these predestined prayers have have you, Lord, predestined to. Yeah deliver grace to my daughter maybe or maybe it's somebody else's prayer sure you know or maybe it's collectively all of them yeah i mean who yeah we don't there's no way to quantify how god works in that in that context have you ever struggled with the other side of that being um god god cannot act without me god can't impart grace without me praying so i like I don't know, because there's two sides of that coin, right? There's the side of the coin that's motivated to pray because how beautiful it is that God works through that prayer. But the other side of that is um, an emphasis on on yourself and your ability to bring about God's grace for others. No, only because the doctrine that protects you from that yeah, is this. It's not a matter of need. So if I think... Yeah. God needs me to pray this so that his grace can go to that individual, then I'm in a bad way. And that's a long frame of mind. And that produces anxiety. And all of a sudden my prayers are anxiety riddled, not faith offered. Right. Right. Um, but if I know God doesn't need my prayers in the slightest. Sure. They are simply his ordained chosen conduit that he is eternally ordained through which to deliver grace to that individual. So, um, before I get into the practicum of what is prayer as a reformed individual, I have to have a solid doctrine of God. Yes. You know, I have to know 
God doesn't need these prayers. You know, God can if if he were to will. Um, God doesn't need any preachers to go and deliver the gospel. If he wanted his elect saved, he, he could have eternally chosen to just manifest himself individually, uniquely, in their hearts, whatever, apart from any preacher ever preaching. You know, so um, knowing that God could have chosen to have done that, uh, you know, he, he has the ability to do that. He's free to do that if he so chooses. But what he has chosen immutably is to do it through these prayers. So it doesn't produce anxiety in me, but rather it produces motivation. Right. And um, I've known a lot of people. And in fact, sometimes even Reformed people are guilty of this when they're trying to get people to go and serve um, in missions contexts. Mm-hmm. You know, like those people over in that unreached people group can't come to know Jesus unless God yeah. needs you to go over there. That's rough. Yeah, it's rough. And that produces an anxious ministry because now all of a sudden I'm trying to do something for God. Um, and when I'm trying to do something for God, oh man, pragmatism kicks in. Right. Well, that is pragmatism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's just all kinds of um, terrible things are happening. I'm I'm thinking about what's going to work, what's going to produce an effect. I'm trying to make this happen for you, Lord. You know, and that's just, you know, that's that's why I think theology proper has to be the 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 bed upon which we have this conversation about you got to know who God is and then knowing who God is, this is what prayer is because of who God is. And so um yeah, theology proper is a a necessary um a priori yes. thing that you have to understand first before you get into the doctrine of prayer or evangelism or any of those yeah, things. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, the foundational doctrine of God is the is the basis for everything else. It's one of those things. This cigar is getting better at the end. Is it? Yeah. That's great. This cigar is incredible. <laughs> that cigar is better than this cigar. Oh, I, I promise it is. <laughs> it's 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 phenomenal. That's it. I love, I've had, uh, so for the sabbatical, mm-hmm. a member of our church, can I say the name? Sure. Am I allowed to? I mean, I don't care. Cassie Doty. Really? Yeah. She's the man. I I know. Even though she's not a man, she's the man she's in this context. She's the context, right? You know, yeah. she bought me like five or six. What? Yes. Wow. Liga Provides. How delightful. That's like $100 of cigars. Yes. And she was like, happy sabbatical, here's the cigars. Dude, and that's her. I know. Now, the shame that I bear is that's my last league of Provada. Oh, so you I'm gave already... me your last one? <laughs> and I you did. smoked. <laughs> well, when you said, I was going to smoke it last night. But you were all like, hey, we should do it. Oh, dude, thing. I feel bad. I'm smoking your last league. No, no, no. I still have this one. I don't even know what it is. She bought me this as well, but I don't know what it is. LFD. Yeah, it's... Um, it's... I think it's it's La Flor de, de, de la Dominica, the flower of the Dominica. Oh, I it think. smells amazing. I believe. Yeah, it was pretty good. I, I, um, I got one of those for Father's Day like two years ago or mm. something like that. Best cigar you've ever smoked? <laughs> no. Oh, oh, that? No, no, no. Yeah. Gosh. I'm working on it, I think. Um, this, is pretty, this is pretty up there. I smoked... Um, my father's my father has one called Garcia and Garcia. It's also the most expensive cigar I've ever purchased, yeah. which is doesn't necessarily mean better cigar. More than twenty dollars? Yes. Okay, wow. It was thirty dollars. 
And I got it for myself when Millie was born uh, as the celebratory thing. Um, as you should. Obviously. Actually, you can watch me smoke it. There's uh, the, my first, when I was doing the video Is thing. Is it a YouTube thing? The first, my first uh, video thing was was that cigar. I was cool. talking about, but yeah, it was, yeah. And that was a phenomenal cigar. This, I think, honestly, is probably... Top 10? Oh, for 100%. Top 5? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, this might be the best one ever. Really? I, this is The flavor is so good. So, I did smoke a, um, a Monte Cristo from Cuba. Which means... Nothing, really. I mean, rolled roll on the thighs of virgins, absolutely. <laughs> um, so they say. I mean, I can't, I can't confirm or deny. It's a perfect way to end this very... <laughs> <laughs> very pious. Um, yeah, no, I... Uh, yeah, I, I smoked one... When was... Oh, I helped Nick uh, do some welding on his truck. And um, he and afterwards he and I smoked his last two and and um from talking that was it's such a good it was such a good cigar it, the flavor was so very unique it was very light it wasn't it wasn't um it wasn't heavy at all but the it was such a unique flavor it was so good but from talking to Nick and others about and researching about cigars in general Cuban cigars are no longer the the gold standard I think it's Nicaraguan as far as as far as I've, I've heard and been told and whatever. Doesn't it make you wish that James Fryer would enjoy a cigar? Oh yeah, he's he's he's, he's missing he's, out. He owns property in the motherland. Um, he is missing out. Have you had a Nico Rustica? Rustica, no. Horrible. Oh no. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. I got one at Willie's one day, mm. and inwardly, I didn't say this because I think I was alone. Uh, I had my Bible and I'm just there reading alone at Willie's and I'm smoking this Nico Rustica and I thought this is for you James I lit that thing up and I thought this is terrible James <laughs> I'm sorry this, I'm so sorry I'm so I dedicated sorry. this yeah. smoke to you man so what's the best one you've ever had what's your what's your favorite I think my top is definitely so Liga yeah Liga's number one uh, though that might not be true so this guy who's coming as the guest of uh, of Mike to our next yeah gathering yep he bought me a Padron he's he's got great taste in in the finer things that was the best cigar maybe that was the best cigar I've ever had yeah yeah wow. and now he bought me this aromatic cigar that, that one yeah that was not the best yeah the one he gave me that night that he brought was really good the aromatic was okay okay not great smoked fast um, I didn't get any sort of pipe, you know, I was kind of looking. Yeah, so, was that the one that you brought here, or you had let me smell, maybe I, maybe I had smelled it, or taken it, you, maybe, you, you might even got me a drag on it. Not I good. was surprised too, because you say aromatic, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking pipe tobacco. Yeah, it smelled like that, the outside, you yeah. can smell that. The wrapper But did. it just didn't have that, it was like a star or something, I can't remember the name of it. It wasn't, it didn't, uh... Not that great. No, it wasn't. $24. Really? Not worth it. No, definitely not worth it. Uh, Amos gave me a couple of hits off of his God of Fire. He bought you one. 
I bought him oh, one. Oh, you bought him weekend. one. That's right. And that thing was, I don't remember how much it was, but it was a lot. It was like a $50 cigar. Was it, was it, was it worth $50? It was tremendous. Wow. But it can't be the best cigar I've ever smoked because I took two hits off it. And, you know, and that's just not yeah, a... Yeah, you can't. It's not unless like you smoke, right? Unless you smoke all three-thirds, you can't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this is phenomenal. So, um, we've recently been talking about, in our group, how, like, definitely distilled... But preferably scotch, you know, and... I'm, I, I'm probably bringing this on Saturday. I love scotch. However... Yeah. You know, I'm not like a scotch snob at all. I'm not an anything snob. Well, I mean, in that world, I don't think I'm an anything snob. And, uh, frankly, the Diplomatico that I brought... The other <laughs> so night, good! So, I'm just saying, like, when I went home, I had it a was brand empty. new bottle. <laughs> that thing was gone! <laughs> You know Dude, that that stuff is candy. So for the listeners, we're talking about Diplomatico rum. Yes. Which is if you want a good rum. Yes. That good grief. My favorite. It was I th- the dark. It wasn't the blanco. They make a blanco. It wasn't that. Have you had the blanco? No. I wonder if it's any good. It's cheaper. Sure. So it makes me think. Not as good. Maybe. It, it, Again, cost to deliciousness is not a one to one correspondence. But the dark is sort all. of this the. Their flagship. Okay. And it is, it doesn't disappoint. I like that you said flagship because we're talking about rum, which is, you know, pirates and nautical. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that stuff was, was good grief. That was good. My favorite rum up until that point was Sailor Jerry's. Have you ever had Sailor Jerry's? Uh, yep. Do you, what do you think? Not good? Good? Uh, yeah, six out of ten. I mean, it's a spiced rum. It's so it's not, it's rum. not like, it's not super refined or anything. I like it because it has a higher alcohol content, and so the flavor is a little sharper, yeah. which balances out the sweet. sweet. The Diplomatico, however, was that was that 51? It was 44. 44. Which is crazy because it was sweeter, but Dude, had, better than any spice rum so I've ever good. had. Yes. And I think it was just, and it was, can I say this? Uh, Kraken. Have you had Kraken? You've had Kraken. Oh, so gross. Yeah, it's gross. It's disgusting. It's chemically, all the it's flavors. It's saccharin. It's, yeah, it's, it's nasty. Ugh. Sailor Jerry's is not Kraken, but it's in that world to me. Sure. I could, I could, I mean, it's, it's so much better than Kraken. It is. It's better than Kraken. But it's, it's in the same, it's a bro rum. It's a bro rum. It's not, it's not great. I love Sailor Jerry's for mixing. But it's, sure. it's not my favorite, just I want to sip this slowly, whereas Diplomatico is... Well, like, so I've... Just... Yeah, sipping rum is not... Is not um, like, on the, on the, in the pantheon of sipping uh, spirits, rum is not... In general, rum is not up there for me. But that Diplomatico was very sippable. It was a sippable rum. It was a... You know, it, it actually crossed the line, in my opinion, to fine distilled spirits. Oh, 100%. As opposed to, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, so the beef eater that I brought is just... So good. <laughs> it's delicious. I love beef eater. Beef eater's so good. Nobody drank that, though. Yeah, I, well... I went home with a lot of beef eater. Yeah, the thing is, we did we did drink scotch, and that's what we were there to, to enjoy. And so you, I think we got into the, that was what we, what we did first. We, we tasted the scotch and then we got into the, to the other stuff you brought kind of post hoc. Yeah. And so everyone had kind of had, you know, what they wanted to have. 
And so it, it took something phenomenal to actually have any amount yeah. that's, you know, measurable. And that was a diplomatic. Oh, the beef eater is good, but after having a, a couple glasses of scotch, I it's know, not. it's not the same. No. I, I brought um, a single malt scotch with, with me that I picked up in Orlando. <laughs> yes, you did. It was terrible. Yeah, it was so bad. It was so bad. I had, like... I poured myself a very small tasting oh, because you guys had been making fun of it, and I'm glad I didn't pour myself. Just horrible. It's not good. The one that I brought, uh, the the Glen Morangi. That was good. It was it was okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't um, super high dollar scotch or anything, but it Winter was a Highland. Night was Mike's? Oh yeah, whatever Glen, uh, that was. Uh, Glen. Uh, yeah, it was a Glen. What? Uh, I for, I keep forgetting. I forget. I, I I didn't even take a picture of the bottle. Steve had an Oban, right? Who brought the Oban? Uncle Nicky brought the Oban, yeah. The Oban was good. That's what, so so Mike's Mike's guest, uh, he came to one a while back and he brought Oban. Or no, I'm sorry, he didn't. It was the, uh, it was the uh, Belved, uh, uh Oh, yeah. That Belvini. Belvini. Which is delicious too. That was good. But that's a that's a uh It's delicious. It's a little high end. But Scotch, it's, but that's a, a that's a um it's not an Isla or a Highland. What's the other one? See, I'm not I'm not as good. What Steve was this, would be the What guy. was the second the second uh time? So we, we did, did Isla. And then we did And then we did Good grief. This is embarrassing. I know. It's terrible. We did Isla, and then we did something else, and I brought and something. We, and then we did Highland. And then we did Highland. Uh, I don't know. So Highland is not... Highland, I think... I think all of it fits in the category of Highland. I'm not sure. No, Highland and the second one that we can't remember are sourced from the same river, I think. Okay. But they're diff- they're still different regions. So I think Isla is its own is it's its own thing. I believe I believe the Isla like Lagavulin. Yeah, all Ardbeg. those great things. Ardbeg. Yeah. I still wish I could get a hold of um, Ardbeg's Kelperia, and bring that. Yeah, you were talking it's about two hundred fifty bucks. A yeah, it's insane. It's amazing. It's delicious. I brought some Ardbeg that night. And it was super smoky. Really good. Same thing that Nikki had, but he wasn't there that night. Yeah, you just brought the. I think the classic Ardbeg, which was which was delicious. Yeah. I think I like the Lafroig the best. What is the I did too? The Lafwag. Which is crazy because the Lagavulin was a two hundred and twenty dollar bottle. What? Yeah. No. Yeah. Why? I don't know. That Lagavulin? I don't think that's what he paid for it. But no, I think that's what there's it, no way. That's like a ninety dollar bottle. So what is the variety that were what is the region that were I don't. I don't know. I thought there were only three. Well, I don't know anything about anything. I thought there were only three regions. Yeah. I could be completely wrong. See, we ought to do a tequila night. Dude, let's send that hundred percent. Because if we did, if we did, let's go crazy high end añejos. Yeah, we'd still be spending less than. <laughs> you know, still. Though there was one night, um, there was a counseling situation I was doing. Some friends. Uh, it was like, you know, we want to talk about some things, but, uh, it's heavy. So we should, we should, we should be drinking while we talk about it. <laughs> I like those people. It was good. 
And uh, we went out and uh, to a Mexican restaurant, and I said, we want your finest shots of Añejo, whatever that is. $35 a shot. Per shot? Yeah. Oh, that's stupid. How, yeah, what was it? I don't, I don't know. It was probably Don Julio. It was delicious. I'm sure it was wonderful. It was smooth and wonderful and beautiful. Rich and, and deep, yeah. All the things that I want in tequila. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. This tequila, I'm surprised. This, uh, for the listeners, we're, drink, we're, we're drinking 1800 um, Reposado. Surprisingly good. It's surprisingly good. I've never had 1800 before tonight. And I've always kind of snubbed my nose at it. But it's really good. I also had the best margarita of my life with this tequila. I didn't know that the real way to make, make a margarita is with tequila, contro, and ice. That's no. basically it. No. Yeah, and, and a lime. And a lime. Yeah, I mean, it's not a lime. Wow. Lime, yeah, so like, I, I'm sorry, lime juice. So like, you know, an ounce of lime juice. So I think it's I think it's one, two, and two. One ounce of lime juice, two of contro, and two of... Contro on its own... It's not bad. Okay, so Contro is a is an orange liqueur, but it is. but it's actually forty percent, and it tastes it does not taste like it does not taste like those those jumbo orange gummies with the crystallized yeah. sugar all over them, yeah. which is what like triple sec tastes like. Yeah, it's actually splendid, and like you can sip Contro. So I feel disqualified. From being a part of the group that we're in, because I agree with you. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, there's a sense in which... Well, hey, we'll be disqualified together. <clears throat> and I kind of want to bring, I want to bring rejects, delicious rejects. <laughs> I tried to do that this past time. I brought the scotch. It you were, fit in I think category. you were, sick. you were brought, you were wildly successful. I think so with the, yes, the Diplomatico. And I thoroughly enjoyed the beef eater, which is gin for you people listening. Yeah, yeah. London, London dry, dry English gin. It's delicious. It's like the most classic gin flavor there is. Had some really bitter tonic water that I made a gin and tonic out of. With no ice because you're a crazy person. No ice Ugh. because I'm wild. You are wild. Uh, I, the, the, that particular tonic, I think I'd go fever tree again if I were... So I did the navy and whatever, the navy... That brand of tonic water, I wouldn't do that. I would go Fever Tree, and uh, I should give you my Fever Tree. I have two bottles of Fever Tree in my refrigerator that I, I got them out of a house I was working on. They had moved out, and we were cleaning. We were doing a full clean of the house, and it was in the it was in the pantry, or whatever. And I was like, oh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, it was four. It was two four packs of Fever Tree, and I have made a. I had made a couple. G and T's, but they're not. It's not my favorite. I like I like gin by itself. I do too. Yeah, I, I you know I I I used to drink with a guy who has since removed himself from you know drinking. Yeah. Oh no, from membership. Oh wow. This was. Uh, oh okay. So uh, it's difficult, and he's made me a couple of really good G and T's, but um, still, I prefer a good gin straight. It's so good. I uh, so generally you prefer your your drinks neat. I do. Yeah, me too. I used to drink. I used to drink tequila with ice. Well, I used to drink my. I used to drink with ice. Do you ever stick your tequila in the freezer and then drink it cold? No, I don't, because it's not as good. It's not as good. It, I, it, uh, uh, our favorite Asian, who will remain nameless, 
I almost said his name. He would be furious. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I had some tequila I wanted him to try one time. He was helping me move, or I forget what, but I was like, hey, I have this tequila. You want something? He said, sure. And uh, I started to get, uh, no, I took it out of the freezer. And um, he was like, oh, no, what are you, why? why? Was it Trace Agaves? No, it was Coralejo. I don't know if you were okay, heard. Yeah. yeah. That was my favorite tequila for a long time. Um, he was like, when you, when you, because of the alcohol content of this stuff, when you make it super cold, all you taste is the alcohol. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was, that's bunk science. That's He's not totally real. totally right about that. He's totally right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I poured him a, a small, you know, I pulled, poured him a tasting and he held it in his hand for, you know, five or ten minutes or whatever. Obviously, it doesn't take long. And then he sipped it. And uh, Have you been affected by him? You know, I find him affecting the way that I eat, that I drink, that I mm. that I put shoes on my feet. I'm wearing shoes. Are those zeros? They are. Well, they're they're Amazon knockoffs. Sure. They're forty dollar, but there's nothing to them, and it's changed the way I walk. So you're a fan. Yeah, I find he has uh, he researches things. Oh, he reaches he researches things to death. That's yeah. insane. I don't know. I cannot comprehend the headspace you have to be in to do that, but. So, with the zero drop shoes, um, he convinced me it was a good idea, and I bought a pair, and I went running on Nolan Trail the next day, like two and a half miles, and I couldn't walk the next day. Yeah. And I told him that, he was like, well, yeah, dummy, you're supposed to do, like, you've been training your feet to walk, you know, on weird shoes this whole, your whole life, you can't just switch it up and do two and a half miles on an aggressive trail. Anyway... So I was like, okay, well, I guess next time I'll do less. I'll give it another shot. It took me like four days for my feet to stop hurting. Oh, my gosh. So I I waited, and I went out again with them. I've only gone running with them twice. The second time I did, which is, again, like I did, I think I did two miles instead of two and a half. And he was like, you're supposed to increase by like 100 yards a day or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, so it, it, my feet were falling off and dying. So I was like, well, this is for the birds. So I got the the tennis shoes with the biggest sole I could find. I got Hoka um, uh, uh, 1 1, something like that. I forget what they're called. But Hoka makes tennis shoes with real marshmallow soles. Nice. Dude, it feels like I'm running on air. It's nice. phenomenal. Yeah. And uh, so I still wear the zeros when I'm doing weight training, though, because I really like. The feeling of, like, I don't know. I like, I, I can I can be way more planted and solid on my heels when I lift. Yeah. And that's, it feels good in terms of the lift. And it's, you know, it's it's great for form in terms of preventing injury and all that stuff. So that's helpful. And that doesn't hurt my feet. But man, if I go, I, I mowed the lawn in them today. Because I got, I got home, I got changed to work out. And then the rain stopped. And I was like, well, I better mow the lawn before it starts pouring again. And I was in my workout clothes, so I just mowed the lawn in my zeros, my zero shoes. And, um, yeah, like, even now, I can feel my tendons hurt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like... It took me about a month, and my hip hurt. My right hip was full of pain because I, I did what you did. I just went all in. You went for it, yeah. And um, it changes the way that I walk. Mm-hmm. So, but now, on the back end of it, you know, I find myself, my feet have, I already have a, a double E width. Same. 
And when I look for shoes, the dress shoes that I normally wear to church are painful. Yeah. A couple of Sundays ago, um, you know, after preaching, I sat on the front row. I had to take my shoes off. Oof. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was just painful. I just couldn't keep these shoes on my feet. So it really does spread the toes. Yeah, they've got a wide... That's why... Initially, that's why I wanted them. Because I was asked... Because I bust through the sides of all my shoes. My my feet are fat and I'm fat and everything's fat. And I bust through the sides of my shoes all the time. And um, even my boots. Like, I have Red Wing boots. And um, I haven't busted the sides because they're leather and they're nice. And so they just kind of end up expanding and whatever around your feet as, as time goes by. Yeah. But um, I want I wanted a shoe with a real wide toe box. And that's what those It's a way to afford. do it. Yeah. All right, man. Well, sir, thank you so much for doing this. Anything you want to say to the good people? Yeah. Um, repent of your sin. Second he hoped.